You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Good morning. Hi. We'll be in Luke 9, so if you want to find that, we'll start in verse 10. Okay. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day had began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Thank you. Have you ever sat down to a meal? And as it was brought out before you, your first thought was, this isn't enough. um, I I can tell you, Rachel and I have gotten pretty good at this game with our three kids, and we can usually tell pretty quickly when reinforcements are necessary. Um, But where we find ourselves this morning is a crowd of hungry people had ventured out to see Jesus. The disciples tell Jesus to send the people home But instead, Jesus tells the disciples to ring the dinner bell and feed everyone. With nothing but five loaves and two fish, Jesus blessed the meal, and everyone present is fed in abundance, reminding the disciples and us that Jesus not only provides, but he alone satisfies The feeding of the 5,000 is a moment that has captured people's attention for centuries. But there's a danger to things that become too familiar because we we think we know it or we've heard it and we've, we've gone through this before. But what stands out to me is that this account... This moment, the feeding of the 5,000, apart from Jesus' resurrection, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So as we step into this passage, no matter how many times you've seen this, or maybe this is your first time really looking at it, let's pay attention to what God has for us this morning. And so we look at verse 10 of chapter 9. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now last week, if you were with us, uh, we looked at Jesus as he sent out his disciples with purpose, with permission, with power. They were given authority to heal, to cast out demons, and to proclaim the kingdom of God wherever they went. 
Now, we read here that they are returning, and they're coming back to Jesus, and they're kind of giving their update on all that they had done. And, and if you've ever had a season in your life where you've gone really hard after something, you know, a season of work that's just been so intense, and you've thrown yourself in, maybe even you've gone on a missions trip where you just, like, every part of you was required, or there's just this huge looming project that you had to get through, and you finally get through it, and at the end of that season, there's, there's usually some space required for some debrief, download, and, and some downtime, and Jesus is looking to have some of this time with his disciples. He knows that they've just experienced something unique. They had watched him in ministry. They had done things alongside him, but now he had sent them out on their own with his power, his authority in them, but still they're coming back after experiencing something different. And so we see that Jesus takes the disciples and they withdraw to the town of Bethsaida. Now, whenever you read a town with the name Bet in the front of it, like Bethlehem, that's actually the, the Hebrew Bet Lechem. It's two words, house of bread. So Bethsaida here really could be translated as house of the hunts or the house of, of fishing from geographical and excavational remains that people have found, and you can actually go and visit this town and some of the remains that, that are still there. They've discovered that this was a fishing town. Uh, from this map, you can see that it was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But when we think about this, and Jesus retreating to this town of Bethsaida, it's best for us not to think that he was actually in the center of this place, which would have been a population of maybe about 1,000 people. But Jesus was withdrawing to a place uh, to, to get alone. In Mark's account of this same moment, uh, we see that Jesus' desire was to get away with the disciples and to give them some rest. We even see in Luke's account that they go to a, a desolate place. So think of it on the outskirts of Bethsaida in a place where there was some space and they could just be with each other. But with Jesus... We are starting to see that eluding the crowds and getting away from anybody is becoming more and more impossible as his works are being known, his authority is being seen, his teachings are, are just like a magnet as people are coming to him. And so verse 11, we read, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. See, what Luke has been reminding us is that Jesus' popularity, his notoriety, is only growing. Where Jesus went, the crowds went. And in this moment, it's no different. He was trying to move away from the crowds with the disciples, but the crowds continued to move towards him. But I want us to pay attention to how Jesus responds to this. Because it says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he, Jesus, welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. I love this, that Jesus welcomes them in. In both Matthew and Mark's account of this, we read that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And so, uh, moving towards them, welcoming them, having compassion on them, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and cured those in needs of healing. He moves towards the need. We see this with Jesus time and time again. Where there's a need, he's moving towards it. Now, when I think of one of the things that I tend to be most selfish with, it's my time. We all have the same number of hours in the week, and they are fleeting, and they are passing. 
And even as you are sitting here right now, I just want you to know I never take for granted the fact that you have chosen to spend time here on a Sunday morning, even after getting married. You have chosen to spend time here on a Sunday morning to lean into what God has for you and to experience him. And Jesus' desire in this moment was to be alone with the twelve. To allow them space to recover physically, mentally, to to debrief with him all that they had experienced. And instead of time alone, he's met by crowds. And instead of responding with frustration or anger, he, he welcomes them. This disruption turns into a moment of God's grace on display. And for us, there's something to lean into here. Because I think disruptions are opportunities to display our faith in God. When is the last time you welcomed disruption in your life? Right? None of us are like, I can't wait. I hope the day is totally ruined. No, like we get one little warble in the plan that we have and we're like, what is going on? Like we've got our, our plan and we want to stick to it. We do everything we can to avoid disruption. In a moment that I am, I am really not proud of, and I actually was reluctant to share this because I was like, really, this was you? And it was. I, I, remember, I remember standing in a dark closet waiting. Now, the reason I was there is because I was working at the time as a youth pastor, and there was someone who would stop by my office from time to time, and you never knew where the conversation was going to go, but usually it didn't go anywhere great. Like, it wasn't something I looked forward to. There was some new problem, some new something, some, like, just, and it would just go on and on, and it would go from, like, a little bit of time to a lot of bit of time, and so I was in my office, and I heard this person coming down the hallway, and I began to look and be like, Lord, I don't have time for this. Like, I can't do this today, so I did the, the only mature thing I knew to do, and I went and I hid in the closet in my office, <laughs> and I remember as I was sitting there, I'm like... I'm a grown man, like whispering to myself because I don't want them to hear me. I'm like, you're a grown man. This is ridiculous. Like, I was so embarrassed and so convicted. And I remember thinking like, Jesus, what would you do in this moment, right? Like, what am I doing here? And then I remembered, Jesus stayed in the darkness of the tomb for three days. (laughs) And I said, yes, this is good. This is the word of the Lord. I will remain. And I burst forth three days later. (laughs) But what we see here in Jesus is he's meeting things head on. He's not avoiding the moment. It's his compassion that's leading him forward. And we'll see in this, this encounter, there's more disruption that comes our way. And the way that Luke is detailing this account, there's a particular group that he wants us to pay attention to. It's the disciples. Remember, they're, they're excited, but they're probably depleted. He's trying to pull away with them. And how are they responding to what they are experiencing in this moment? Because Jesus is about to put on another miraculous display. Verse 12 Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. 
Now, call this whatever you will. There's practical limitations that the disciples were seeing in this moment. Maybe they were having a little bit of compassion fatigue or they were just overwhelmed looking at the crowd surrounding them. The day, it says in this passage, is wearing away. And I love that phrasing because it sounds like it's just, it's a tired day already. It's just wearing away. And they're looking around and going, we can't feed all these people. And Jesus, if we're going to take care of these people, we need to send them away. They need to go home. They need to go somewhere. We've got a lot of people here to feed. It's getting late. But what they were looking at in that crowd was something that they could do nothing about because they didn't have enough. But what they forgot in this moment is that Jesus always has enough. In verse 13, it says, but he said to them, Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. The command here is emphatic. You. Like he just, he grabs it and just says, you guys are going to take care of it. You give them something to eat. I would love to hear how this conversation played out or just to see the look on the disciples' faces as Jesus is like, no, you give them something to eat. And they're like, like, just trying to take this all in. I mean, how many of you have had a moment where you felt ill-equipped for the task at hand? Where you were pretty convinced you didn't have what it was going to take to solve the problem that was in front of you? I mean, I know even as I'm saying that, some of you are thinking, actually, I'm doing pretty good. I only feel inadequate on days that end in Y, right? right? But he gives them this command. You give them something to eat. And what's their response? Coming back from seeing the miraculous, what's their response in this moment? They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. Now, keep in mind here, it says 5,000 men. That's not accounting for any women and children that were there, so that number balloons instantly to even greater than 5,000. Now, to be fair, the disciples' response here. It's pretty solid. Their case against like doing anything, it's pretty good. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Even if they could go out and get food, they could go to the surrounding towns and try and muster up something. By the time they got back with something edible, it was going to be really late. Not to mention that to buy all that food would have taken about seven months of the average person's wages to feed that many people. So taking stock of what they have, they come up with five loaves and two fish. So their concern here for the people seems pretty genuine. Like, we're not going to be able to do this. Now, in John's account, we learn that it was Andrew, the disciple Andrew, Peter's brother, who discovers a boy who has the five loaves and the two fish. I mean, that's a really small charcuterie board for 5,000 people. Meaning, Jesus is asking the disciples to feed a crowd of over 5,000 with the equivalent of a lunchbox. Now, I remember my Lone Ranger lunchbox with its matching thermos when I was a kid. And my mom packed me plenty of food. I did, I did not lack for food. But some days, I still had to trade with friends because I just wanted a little more. And here the disciples are being told to take this kid's lunch and feed everybody. Now, I want to just take a brief aside here, because sometimes when we get to passages like this, there's different ways of interpreting it, and there's there's become a kind of a popular conversation around this passage in particular that I think it shoots us over the actual point, and so this is why I'm drawing this out, because some of you may have heard this, and you're like, I think maybe that was it, and I think we're missing it. 
Because over the years, uh, some have seen the interpretation that this small boy's sacrifice is actually the miracle of the act of sharing, which now, granted, I have kids. I've seen other kids. Sharing is a miracle. I've also seen adults. And when adults share, that is a true miracle. Uh, But this boy's willingness to share his food Some say, well, his willingness to share his own food from the little that he had exposed the unwillingness and the selfishness of all those who gathered there. And so this boy became this catalyst for all to share what they had. Now, granted, that's a a beautiful image. It's a beautiful story, a lesson in generosity. That's great. And while I believe the act of generosity, sharing what we have with others, is a biblical thing, at times I have seen uh, even that sharing can be miraculous, that's not the miracle here. Something is happening in this moment that cannot be explained. We love to be rational and to explain away the things that we feel like can't be explained. This is one of those moments where Jesus is doing something so profound. There was lack and then suddenly there was plenty. The supernatural is intervening here. Meaning something outside the natural way we see the world is at operation here. Something is breaking through the norms and the conventions and the laws of the universe and something so spectacular happens that we have no ability to adequately put it into words. And this is what's on full display in this moment. Jesus begins. All of a sudden, he's told the disciples, you, you do something about this. All they can see is the crowds and the limitations and the little that they have. And they're like, we, we can't do anything. And that moment right there becomes uh, this catalyst for Jesus to begin to prepare the most talked about church potluck in all of history. And he says to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Jesus has his disciples to begin to organize the crowd. Now, here's the danger of the familiar. We know this story so well that we can forget that this moment was actually lived in. And the disciples When this was all happening, they had no idea where this was going. We read it, and they're like, you guys, Jesus was going to take care of it, obviously. And they're like, we didn't know. We didn't know how this was going to play out. We saw over 5,000 people in one space, five loaves, two fish, and we're like, that's not going to cut it. But notice here what's happening. They didn't know what was happening, but even without understanding, there's obedience on the part of the disciples. Now, we love to give the disciples a hard time, like, you were with Jesus, and you didn't get it, but here's a moment where I think they're getting it. It may feel like they're slow to get it, but they're still acting even without understanding. They followed the direction of Jesus even when they did not know the outcome. See, for us today, too often we press for complete understanding before we'll be obedience. Our prayers are like, hey, Jesus, if you just tell me what you're doing, I'll be all in on it. But just give me a clear picture so I know exactly how to respond. And he's like, I'm going to give you this much. Do you trust me? And then we respond back like, Jesus, I I, I hear what you're asking me, but just help me understand and and help me see it again fully and completely. And And then, you know, I'll be all in once you tell me and you show me and you give me three signs. And maybe the fourth sign will be the one that convinces me to say yes to you. But the disciples here 
are given a direction by Jesus in a moment where they don't know what's fully happening and they, they say yes to him. And see, to me, faith is saying yes to Jesus even before we fully understand where he's leading us. It's trusting that he's enough. His direction is enough. Now, I want, I want to say this because there could be a danger here. Where you, are you saying like faith means no understanding and I just have to blindly follow? No, it, God gave us a mind. He gave us the ability to think, to process, to discern, to, to search the scriptures, to know his word. But what I am saying is so often we want a rational reason as to why we should follow Jesus when he's given us all the clues we need just to say yes to him, to trust that he has us. So if Jesus is calling you into something, if he's directing you into something, It doesn't mean you have to understand what the next 10 years of your life is going to look like. What he's asking for you is to take the first step towards him. Just to move toward, trust him and say yes to him. And so we see that. The disciples, they're like, we don't know how this is going to work. And Jesus is like, listen, I need you to get them into groups. What I love is we don't see a conversation of like, why are we getting them into groups? This is weird. No, they just did it. They trusted what he was doing. And then Jesus, taking the five loaves and the two fish, this is verse 16, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. As we read that he takes these five loaves and these two fish and he blesses them, most likely Jesus at this time would have blessed the bread with a common Jewish prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who brought bread from the earth. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now, what I love about Scripture is the way it speaks about itself and to itself. So anytime you're reading along and there's something that has a familiar ring to it, just just start to poke away at that because there's a thread there. There's a hyperlink that if you clink, it's going to show you a greater picture of what Scripture is getting after. So when we hear he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, there's an image that should start coming to your mind. You're like, when did Jesus break bread with his disciples? Ah, the Last Supper. It's this hint of what's to come and what God is ultimately going to do. And it speaks to this breaking of bread and this Passover, this freedom that's coming from God and his provision. And the Passover points us all the way back to the Exodus and God's provision for his people when they trusted in him to get out of Egypt into a new land. And yet we see that they spiral and they see God do these amazing things. And they're like, does he really still act that way? And they forget. And we see this pattern back and forth throughout all of scripture, throughout all of humanity until we get to our circumstances circumstances today where we're still doing the same thing, where God moves in our lives and we're like, that is awesome. And then the next day we're like, I don't even know if he sees me anymore, right? We forget everything that he's done. He's like, no, I'm still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus blesses the bread. He's blessing the provider of the bread. And then he gave the bread to the disciples. Now, this is just interesting. It's just kind of a fun nerd fact. But the word here for gave in the Greek, it's in a tense that's active. Meaning really this word for gave is a continual giving. Something's happening here when Jesus gives the bread that it just keeps on coming. And man, I would love to see how this worked. I would love to see if like the, the disciples are like breaking the bread. And as they break it, it just like reforms. And they're like... Like if they were freaking out or like how it worked or if it was just so natural that the bread like in the basket just never ended and they just kept coming and coming. But, but there it was. And when the, the food ran out, just kidding, that's not what happens in the story, all right? The food doesn't run out because it says, verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate, all, everyone, the entirety 
of people there ate and were satisfied. Everyone eats and is satisfied, meaning they are filled. They're not like, oh, I just, uh, uh, this is a nice little snack to tide me over. No, they are satisfied. They are not lacking. They are full. They have enough. And what this is reminding us of is that if you're seeking real satisfaction, if you're seeking full life, it is Jesus alone who is enough. It is Jesus alone who satisfies. But not only is he enough, not only does he satisfy us, he, he is abundantly enough. Because verse 17 says, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. I mean, think about this. They go from five loaves and two fish, feeding 5,000 people, and they've got leftovers. That's how good Jesus is. Which started with a small lunchbox, ends up into a meal that has so much left over that they have 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now again, this account, this miracle, is recounted in each of the four gospel accounts. What, what is God trying to get our attention on here? What's he trying to get us to pay attention to? What is he, what is he communicating to us? Well, I'm going to put it really simple. I think he's communicating to us that Jesus is enough and Jesus satisfies he meets our earthly needs as well as our spiritual needs. And in him, there is enough, abundantly enough. See, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, that is coming in him, the, the kingdom that he is king over, is not a kingdom of scarcity. It is a kingdom of generosity. Again, going back to when the Israelites were freed from Egypt and wandering around how did they eat? God provided manna miraculously for them. And do you remember what they were told about that manna? That they were to take just enough for the day. Uh, the day before the Sabbath, they were supposed to take enough just for two days. But what did the people do? They tried to collect more. We all have this internal like hoarding that's like, I don't know if it's going to be enough. So I, I know you said you're going to provide, but I'm still not sure. Because even though God's provision came every day, they were still continuing to look to the worries of the next day. And by grabbing for more, what were they saying in their actions? God, I know what you said, but I don't trust it. God, I know you've been good to me this day, but I don't know that you'll be good to me the next day. They didn't trust God. They were acting as though his goodness and his provision would run dry. And what's Jesus continuing to do? So that his provision does not run dry. There's no lack. There's sufficiency. There's abundance. See, Moses was an incredible prophet, but he also said that there was going to be one who was greater than him that would come. And Jesus, through his actions, through his teaching, is showing us that the truer and greater prophet has come. But there's also this moment where Elijah the prophet in the Hebrew scriptures uh, is, is told to feed a, a group of men over 100. And he's given very little to feed them, but he tells them, take this, this will be enough. And, and the response that they look, they're like, I, I don't know. He's like, no, trust me, there'll be some left over. And there was plenty. Again, when we see food in the, the Old Testament, 
when we see food in the New Testament. It's this reminder of the banquet that is to come when we are with the true king of all kings, that there is a sufficiency and abundance. There is all sorts of things that await us. And in Jesus' actions, we are seeing that he is the truer and greater prophet. He is the king of kings. What Moses did was amazing, but Jesus surpasses him. What Elijah did was amazing, but Jesus surpasses him. And here Jesus is surrounded by crowds. He's surrounded by people pressing in on him. And what does he do? He shows compassion and he satisfies. And in the kingdom of God, what we are being reminded of is that there is more than enough. There's more than enough. But think about this. The disciples, they're standing next to Jesus. I mean, how many of us have said, I just, I would love that. I just want to go for a walk with Jesus. And the disciples got to do that all the time and to hear from him. They've just come back from this incredible mission trip where God sent them out. They were healing people. They were casting out demons. They're proclaiming the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. I mean, you know, they're just like on this mountaintop high of like, we have seen God moving. They'd seen what Jesus was capable of. He calmed the seas. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. Like they've seen what he can do. They've now seen what they're capable through his power and authority to do. And still in this moment, they were stuck. They were unsure of how this was all going to work out. And in this moment, all they could do when they got to the end of themselves was act in faith. Trusting that Jesus was enough. Trusting that his word was enough. Trusting that his leading was enough. Even if there was uncertainty of the outcome or the destination. And in turn, Jesus is reminding us here, now, he is enough. And he satisfies. So the question I often have of my own life and in walking with others is why once we have experienced the deep riches of God's love and mercy, do we so often fear that it will run out? Why having experienced being forgiven and freed of our sin, do we still feel like the lunchbox of our life is not enough for him to use? Like what could he possibly do with me? See, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of abundance. I've shared this story before, but I, I remember a couple years back, I was standing in the Truckee River as it flowed all around me. And honestly, if you've seen that video of the double rainbow guy, like, what does it mean? What does it mean? Like, I probably looked like that as I was standing in the river because I'm just watching the water flow by and I'm like in awe. I'm like, it just keeps coming. Look at it go, right? Like I'd never seen a river before, but somehow, someway, this was hitting me brand new because what God was showing me in this moment is his love. There's no end. There's no lack. It does not run dry. It's just coming. It's just coming. And so many of us live with this deep fear that it's gonna run out or that he's got enough for everyone else except for us. But he's enough, and he satisfies. He's not unaware of what you're walking through. He's not looking past you. He sees you. He's just waiting for you to say, yes, you are enough. 
to keep your eyes fixed on him. Because the waters of his love just keep coming. This is what is available to us in Jesus. His love will never run dry. And too many of us, we're looking at our lack. Or we're looking at the crowds that are surrounding us. Or maybe you're, you're looking at something that Jesus has been speaking to you about for a long time. The Spirit's just been pushing you on like, this is where I want you to go. And you're like, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. Or maybe if you give me a clearer picture, then I'll say yes. I just need a little bit more information because all you can see is your inadequacies of like what you're calling me to do. I can't do. And you know what? Let me just reassure you. you you're right. You can't do it. You can't do it in your own strength. But that's not what he's calling you into. He's calling you to do it with him. He's calling you to say yes to him, to step forward. Take that one little step forward towards him and trust that he is there. And he'll reveal just what you need to take the next step and the next step and the next step. But for too many of us, we want like the next 25 years mapped out. And he's like, no, 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 this is an adventure. I told you that. Just trust me with today. This is why Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he doesn't say, give us this day our yearly bread. No, he says, give us this day our daily bread. What we need to sustain us today. So quit looking at the crowd. Quit looking at the, uh, the lunchbox in your hand saying, this is not enough. All he's asking you to do is look at him. To trust in him. To step forward in him. And to see that he is enough. And that he alone satisfies. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you with open hands. And Lord, if our, our hands don't readily open, would you help us to open them? And Lord, I ask that you would lift our eyes to look to you. Not to our lack. Not to our feelings of inadequacy. Not to our feelings of shame. Not to our past regrets. But Father, that we would look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, you tell us that in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, death has been defeated. That the wages of our sin, which is death, has been paid and full. It has been satisfied in you. And so, Lord, would we acknowledge that truth? Would we turn to you? Would we turn away from all of our fears and all the ways that we are stuck in our own heads? And would we say yes to you, to walk forward in you, releasing our lives to you? Knowing that in you we are forgiven and we are free. But that is only possible through you. And Lord, I know for some in this room, even hearing that you, you are enough and that you satisfy, there's still this thought that says, I don't know if he is. I don't know if he really can satisfy. God, would you meet them now? 
would you just overwhelm with the river of your love that is unending. And Lord, for any in this room who have sensed a a word that you have given them or a call to action or or even an idea that you have birthed in them, that they have held at bay because they've been too afraid. What I have is not enough. Lord, would you remind them that you are enough? And that the invitation is never to walk alone without you, but it's always to walk with you. And if you are for us, what can possibly come against us? So Jesus, would we receive these truths of who you are? And God, if there's any wrong action in our hearts, if there's any sin that we've allowed to multiply in us that's keeping us from you, God, would we, would we confess? Would we bring that to you? Would we lay that at your feet now? Would your spirit convict? But God, also, would we feel your forgiveness? And would we walk in you wherever you lead? Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Jesus, you are enough. And I pray for each of us that we would remember that even when we can't see what you're doing, that we would trust that you are moving. That you're never unaware. You're never caught off guard. But you have us and you hold us. And so Jesus, would we fix our eyes on you, walking forward confidently in you, even when we have no confidence in ourselves, our circumstances, or what's swirling around us, would we trust that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever? That you do not waver. That you are worthy. And you are to be trusted. So would we say yes to you in all areas of our life? Knowing that you are enough. And only in you will we find true satisfaction. We love you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we close this morning, um, I just want to take a moment to read from Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As you leave from here today, may you trust that Jesus is enough. And may you trust that he alone satisfies. And may you experience his grace and know his peace. God bless you. And we'll see you next week.